morning, good morning. You are listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. Boy, have I got a show for you this morning. It's a show that covers health and well-being through connection to people, people in our community and people beyond who share with us their experiences, their choices and consequences. And regardless of age, their innate wisdom. By discerning and getting a sense of what is transferable from what these guests share, we can choose to apply the relevant aspect in our community and develop programs that found a more sustainable, loving and heartfelt way to be with each other, thereby improving our physical and mental health. In today's show, we're going to look at how you can take what you learn in school and build it into a contribution in life. Now, we've had girls from the social justice teams at Mount St. Benedict's College on this show many times over the last few months. And in fact, just a heads up, they're coming in in a few weeks' time. Now, I remember asking a few of the girls who were so passionate about the language used around refugees if they could leave it there after the project had finished or if it awoken something inside them that just said, hey, I can make a difference. I have a voice. And if we all speak up about decent human relations we might be able to encourage others to do the same. Speak from love and rebuild love as our way of valuing the many and varied contributions we all have to make in life. So today, I have an old Benny's girl who really epitomizes taking what we learn outside of a classic curriculum and taking it into the wider world and then home to share with us so we can see how we can learn, keep the conversation going and not let the same atrocities happen again because we have to ask ourselves, have we really learned anything? And you'll understand the question when you hear the rest of this show. All will be revealed as we go on today, so stay tuned. So it is really taking the local global and bringing back local welcome, Elizabeth King. Hi, Lucy. Thank you very much for having me. You are most welcome. It's a pleasure to have you in the studio today. Um, your passion for making a difference and all this started in a social justice class on Pennant Hills Road. Can you uh, can you tell me more about how your passion was woken? Yeah, sure. So I went to Mount Benedict College um, between 2005 and 2010, and from the first day I stepped into the school, I fell in love with the fact that this concept of social justice and caring about more than just yourself was built into everything. It was built into the curriculum, it was built into the school motto, it was built into the the ethos of the school. And so from day one, we were sort of inspired to think very much beyond ourselves. Um, What are the issues that we're looking at today? What is it that we as young women really want to sort of contribute to this world? What do we want to do? What kind of relationships do we want to form? And so all these opportunities just presented themselves at Benny's. Um, There were these wonderful cultural immersion trips where they would take students to India, which was just fantastic. That's a way to actually see the world and see the people um, that you want to engage with, that you want to build a dialogue with. And I think that's really important. It's often hard to connect with issues without having seen them and experienced Mm -hmm. them firsthand. So Benny's gives students those kind of options. We were constantly doing things like going on the Caritas track or, you know, giving up a meal um, or all meals for the week during lunchtime to help fundraise um, for the poverty movement or supporting partners in Kiribati where the islands are sinking with the rising waters. Mm. So Benny's just from day one instilled in us this sense that we are so privileged and we are so lucky and we have so much to share. And it's so important that we find ways to share whatever it is that we can contribute. And that's something which has stayed with me for life. It's, It's not a lesson you can unlearn, that it's important to care about other people and to do what you can to make a difference where you see there is a need. 
It sounds to me like it, it also fosters an understanding that we that, that the borders are man-made, that actually by going to, to see all these different countries, you actually realise just how similar we all are. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's, it's really only the boundaries that we set for ourselves and deciding that there is an us and a them, which just shouldn't be the case. And so Benny's goes a long way in teaching girls to break down those boundaries. There is no reason um, to not try and help others where you can or to recognise even that help is often sought out in a way that we don't understand. Sometimes it's just about making a friend or building a dialogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when you, what, what was the project you were involved with at... Um, Benny's. Do you remember what it was? I think there were so many different projects that oh, I was really? involved in. Um, sort of, there were a lot that were built into the school curriculum. So a lot okay. of them were really quite innovative thinking, like, can you come up with ways to address climate change? How can we, as young women, sort of band together and build a voice to address these issues? So there were projects built into all sort of aspects of the curriculum, which was great. Um, but so many things I remember is just where they do try and get you to immerse yourself in the challenges of another. So by um, giving up a meal um, every day mm. during the week, you really get a sense of what it is to be without. Yes. And then through fundraising, you're trying to um, get your family, your friends and the, bright, uh, the wider community um, to engage with that as well and then just raise awareness through those issues. So there were so many projects that um, sort of inspired that in me. There are, that, that's a very good way to do it, the, particularly the giving up the meal mm. because we, you know, we eat heaps more than we really need to and actually putting the cost of what you would have put in that meal into a pot is a small way or doing without a magazine or doing without a, um, you know, a, a shopping trip or something. Mm. It's just a small way to actually see just how much wastage sometimes or so many treats we give ourselves that we think, oh, no, no, I don't have enough that I could give another. But it's a very small ask that oh, makes a very big difference in someone else's life. Oh, definitely. Yeah. What happened when you came to the end of your time at Mount St. Benedict? Where did you decide you were going to go after year 12? So I'd always wanted to go to university. I'd never really been quite sure what I wanted to study, but I knew I wanted to do something that was challenging, that was rewarding, and that would sort of take me to the next level of a career that I'd um, sort of decided to build for myself. So I went and studied law at Macquarie University, and I had some great friends from Benny's who came with me, and we all shared that journey together even further. And then studying law, of course, social justice is a huge part of the law. Mm. Um, the law has so much potential to influence the rules that we set for ourselves, the way we interact with others, and empowering others and so that just fueled my passion for social justice and threw me into this this great adventure of traveling to different places and seeing where in the world there are need and there are people willing to to give up their skills or share their abilities to to help address it I've always been fascinated by those who go and study law because it's a tough it's a tough ask it's a it's a very long journey it isn't yes. an easy one <laughs> You've looked at it from how you can uh, stand up for others and represent others. But in law, you sometimes don't have that choice. Sometimes you have to defend someone who is the, the one who actually should go down for, for the crime. How do you bring as much passion to that? Or, or will you just make sure you're, you're on the side of the oppressed as opposed to the opposer? It's a really good question and it's one that the um, year nine girls at Benny's asked me while I was in Cambodia, which we'll get to. Um, but 
basically my opinion on that is we are only as good as our legal system is and the role in defending someone is just as important as the role is in prosecuting them for something Mm. that they've done. If we can't give them a fair trial, um, then we're not doing justice in any sense for ourselves. And so that role is just as important. And as I put it to the Year 9 girls, if you're defending someone as sort of high profile as a war criminal, someone who had a part in the deaths of up to 1.7 million people, the defence is not necessarily trying to get them off the hook. That's not really their role. The defence is just there to make sure that they put the prosecution, the people trying them, up to the challenge. They question all the evidence, make sure it is foolproof, make sure it is exactly what it is. Uh, So the role in the defence is just as important and something I believe just as passionately in. Yes, and that's exactly it, isn't it? We live in a society where um, you're innocent until proven guilty Mm. and it is the role of both sides to put that case Uh, with integrity and honesty. Uh, There are a great many countries that we'll be talking about later in the show today where that level of um, integrity is not their day-to-day experience. So we have to appreciate that actually, as each of us go out into the world, that's what we should bring with Mm. us. Let's go to some community service announcements now. And when we come back, we will head straight into Cambodia and your internship with the UN. You are listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. I'm here today with Elizabeth King, who is going to talk us through social justice, how she's taken it from Mount St. Benedict's College all the way into Cambodia via a UN internship. It's a, it's a, it's, something that we see this UN as this enormous organization that, you know, uh, I, I couldn't imagine figuring out how to get involved in it. And yet there you are, you, you, you take yourself off, you look on the website. Tell us more about how you got involved. Sure. So working for the United Nations has always been a dream of mine. Um, I think probably since legal studies at Benny's, I just decided that's an incredible phenomenon. I'd love to be a part of it. And so while I was um, studying my law degree, I just happened upon the United Nations website and they do have an internship program. Um, And I was scrolling through all the different sort of UN programs that you can work for. You can work for the international criminal courts around the world. You can work in um, gender equality. You can work in sort of the poverty movement. The UN's got some really incredible programs out there but I saw the program um, or the uh, International Criminal Tribunal for uh, Cambodia for the Khmer Rouge and uh, it just struck me I'd never been to Cambodia um, and when I looked into it I saw that they're prosecuting war criminals from Pol Pot's era which was back in the 1970s I had no idea that that was something which was still going on and so when I came across it's the United Nations assistance to the Khmer Rouge trials UNICART for short mm-hmm. um, I just thought that sounds incredible and so I went ahead and I I applied I I put as much as I could into it and never expecting to hear anything from them about a year later um, I got an email an urgent email from the UN and so from there um, <laughs> that's a good one to have in your inbox isn't I it? thought it was spam I was like oh <laughs> yeah won't worry about that but um I was genuinely stoked to get that email and then from there um, I had an online interview and just had to talk a bit about who I am and why I cared about the Cambodian genocide and yes. what I could do to help so so that leads us into perhaps you can tell us about the Cambodian genocide 
from uh, sort of a, a high level overview point of view? Yeah, sure. So it was in the 1970s. It's something which is built into a lot of school curriculums, but it kind of pales in comparison to the Holocaust as far as it's taught. But essentially in the 1970s, um, Pol Pot rose to power through a regime of secrecy. And between 1975 and 1979, there was 1.7 million people who were killed in Cambodia. Essentially, the regime was all about this idea that there is one way of living where everything should be shared. You should just be using your efforts to support Ankar in building a very Cambodian only sort of insular society. And so anyone who opposed that regime, men, women or children, were killed. They were sent to torture chambers, forced to write these confessions of how they were traitors and then killed. So 1.7 million in the course of four years. Um, is what happened in Cambodia. And this was in the context of the Vietnam War. So at the time, the world, I think the world knew, but at the same time, it got a little bit lost in what was happening in Vietnam. And so phenomenal amount of people died, so much damage done to an incredible culture. Um, and then it was a very long process that the world, well, the United Nations started to bring the Khmer Rouge, um, which is Pol Pot's sort of the name of his regime, to bring them to account for what they did and why they did it. I wonder, and I, I stress that I wonder, if looking back at what happened in the reaction to the Vietnam War and how the Americans really turned against uh, the fact that they were involved in it uh, meant that they actually didn't want to consider going into any of those other countries in that region for fear of the same thing happening. But as a result, they completely turned a blind eye to the atrocities that were happening. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence that that was the case, that people did know. Um, but I think so many resources, so much concern was just directed around the neighbouring countries yes. that entering into Cambodia, I'm not sure why it wasn't done. It should have been done, but yeah. it wasn't. And 40 years later, we're trying to, to call to account for it. Yeah. And, and you know, we could look at the same situation happening in Syria mm. and, and other countries that we have that have happened in the lead up to us actually paying so much attention to Syria. Uh, the same thing's been happening and we turn a blind eye because it's not on our doorstep or it's a big ask or we expect, you know, another country to lead the way. Um, it, you know, really conflict is absolutely everywhere. We talk about peace, but peace is, peace is uh, pales into insignificance when you actually, we, what we should be trying to live is harmony where there isn't war and there isn't conflict. Peace is just one step away. Would you, in your experience of being out in Cambodia and seeing what you saw there, would you, would that be something that you could agree to? I think the concept of harmony is something we should definitely strive for. Peace, I think, is a complicated sort of word. Like at the moment, there is no World War Three. There's a sense that we're at peace. But really, the wars that are fought now are not the traditional wars. There won't be a declaration that it's World War Three. but people in the millions are dying and displaced around the world. How do we sort of tell ourselves that we're living in a time that where things are okay, where things are good. But it's also very easy, I think, to feel that the problems are just so big. What are we as young people, as one student, as one law graduate, what are we to do about the situation in Syria or where we see other areas of unrest? So it is a, it's a very sort of a challenging thing to think about, I think. It absolutely is. I mean, you know, you were talking about the the deaths in Cambodia. So the the current deaths looking at the news today was, um, you know, at, at least 500 thousand dead at least 1.6 million injured we're now at 4 million displaced so the i mean you know the numbers on the abc's website 200 
thousand people killed. Um, it's created over four million refugees, mostly um, Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan. Displaced seven point six million people within Syria. I mean, when you look at the pictures that come out of Syria, that's just staggering. And that's and that's using modern day warfare, which wasn't back in that. They didn't have that in Pol Pot's era. You know, they were they were that was down to the ground viciousness. This is, you know, all of a sudden now it's no less vicious, but it's on a mass scale. So you can say, oh, look, I didn't intend to bomb that hospital. I didn't intend to bomb those innocents. But, you know, they were just caught in the crossfire. Mm-hmm. You know, much easier to, to write it off. Bringing it back to Cambodia, uh, looking at the difference between a war crime and crimes against humanity, would you just give us a high level, I know it's really complicated, but just an understanding of if there's a difference? Yeah, sure. It's something it's something I'm still sort of getting my head around, all these kind of labels that we give to what humans are capable of. Um, but like essentially, if you're, you can prosecute for war crimes or crimes against humanity or both. So war crimes are the things that you can kind of imagine which come to mind, things that are done during wartime, which are unacceptable. So the killing of people, torturing, crimes against women, huge phenomenal amount of part, like things that are part of a regime. Crimes against humanity, it's a slightly broader scope. So that's, uh, I suppose, a big difference there is crimes against humanity, it needs to be an attack on a civilian population. Um, and there's actually quite a wide range of things which fall under that. So obviously there's the crimes we know of, like killing and murdering, torturing, raping, all these terrible parts of regimes that happen. But then also other things that we don't think about as much, like forced marriage. That was a big Mm. part of the Cambodian regime, was that women and men were forced to marry. Um, And then from that we have forced pregnancies. So these are crimes which fall under crimes against humanity, things which just attack the conscience of humanity on such a level that we can't accept it and we can't move forward with it. And interestingly, with war crimes, at the moment in the International Criminal Court um, in The Hague, they're trying the first ever case for crimes against culture as a war crime. Wow. Which is fascinating because it means that if we recognise the bombing of um, Muslim mausoleums in Timbuktu, which is the current case, if we recognise that as a war crime, that puts an assault on culture on the same level as an assault of physical violence against a person, which I think is really important because history has shown us that an assault on one's culture can have just as devastating an impact as it is on their physical being. So that's a really interesting sort of development which is happening at the moment. Well, people live in fear, don't they? Exactly, yeah. It's like, you know, persecuting someone for their culture, their religion, you know, all of a sudden they've got a label and and they're they're ostracised, they're targeted, they're labelled. Uh, again, it's a it's a human made separation because you look at the blood and it's all red. You look at the heart and they look exactly the same. You know what is the how this separation has just kind of become normal is is alien to me. I don't know. I, I guess I just wasn't brought up in that way, but it just does. I don't understand it. Oh, I know. There's some somewhere along the way. There's this idea that there's an us and there's a them, mm. and from there, atrocities can just grow. Yeah, and as a society, we have a responsibility to keep that conversation going. And, you know, young people don't tend to have those ideals and beliefs. They tend to be imposed on them. So uh, that's where I love the youth voice because the youth voice will go, what are you talking about? He's my best friend. I don't care what this, that or the other or where his parents go to church. I don't care about that. Um, Whereas 
you know, someone looking at it, it's the classic Romeo and Juliet story, isn't it? Mm. You know, the Montagues and the Capulets. You, you can't date him. He's from our enemy's family. Anyway, let's bring a bit of English into there and talk about a life question. <laughs> um, what work did you do over there with the, um, with the UN internship? So I was an intern in the office of the co-prosecutors. Um, okay. So there's a couple of different elements to the, um, the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. There's the defence, there's the prosecution, there's the pre-trial chamber, the trial chamber, and then the Supreme Court chamber. So all the parts that build up um, a criminal trial on an international scale. So being in the prosecution, um, I was assisting in building a case against an individual who um, there is evidence to suggest was a very key part of the regime. It was terribly fascinating work. Um, it's difficult because you're looking at information and witness testimony from 40 years ago. Mm. So the names of villages will come up which don't exist anymore. The geography has changed. Um, and essentially I had to, I was given a very small piece of a puzzle, one little crime site to analyse, to see what went on there, how many people were killed there, what sort of crimes went on there. And that little piece of a puzzle, whatever I found, would be part of a bigger picture where we could show that, yes, this person was in this area, was responsible for this and should be held accountable for all of this. So a very small piece of a very big and complicated puzzle, but incredibly fascinating work, very challenging because I'd be reading witness testimony, so very human stories of what happened. Um, and then obviously very critical sort of legal work as well. Um, it was incredibly rewarding and I've taken so much from it. It just shows how when we say, what can I do? You're one person, but look at the difference you made because you're working as part of a team that build a bigger case. So we must never, ever underestimate one voice, one person, one contribution, hey? No, it's very true, especially there's often this feeling that you need to do something huge and big by yourself. You need to go and you yeah. need to make a big difference. But Such an illusion. Exactly, yeah. It's really <laughs> good to start, find some people who are already doing some great work, yes. see how you can help them from there. Yeah. You know, more voices is better than one, more hands yes. make better work. That's right. Now, um, I don't want to glide over the fact that you were doing this and having to read things that were quite traumatic. I can imagine if they're witness statements, as you say, very human, there's no question you can distance yourself from, from this being something. How did you handle that? Did you have good support out there? Uh, the team that I was working with, so everyone in the prosecution, the interns, the lawyers, the prosecutors, they are wonderful. They're so aware of how important the work is that they're doing and they are so willing to put time and energy into the interns to make sure that everyone is getting the most out of it and is feeling supported along the way. There'd be days where you'd read something, like some a, a story from a person whose voice is now long gone, um, and it would just be so traumatic that you need a bit of a time out. You take five or ten minutes um, and try to collect yourself but at the end of the day it's much better to try and see the bigger picture of what you're doing so that does involve sort of separating yourself and becoming a little bit um, desensitized to what you're doing but if it means that you can do really good work in a short amount of time I think as long as you don't lose the reality of what you're doing which is working with very human stories trying to condense it into mm. a very legal factual report as long as you keep the humanity in it mm. um, you can sort of find a way to work yourself through it that's right I've learned uh, through lots of different situations in life um, that the the way to keep yourself well is to observe life and not to absorb life so when you're talking to people about traumatic events in their lives then you, you can be with them completely. But if your job is to record 
something, which, of course, the, these people, as you say, who have long now long gone, their voices is, is incredibly valuable. There were people who were recording it that you're now reading. Their job would have been incredibly traumatic because from what I can remember, they're often in now in refugee camps and they just record voice after voice after voice. You have to learn how to observe and how to um, to see that your job is to record. But it's not that you don't feel pain for that person but actually you have to observe it rather than absorb it into your body because it would be harm for you yeah definitely there's something very empowering about taking someone else's story taking someone else's experiences and you can't lift it off of them but you can carry it forward to somewhere else to somewhere where it's going to raise awareness where it's going to make a difference and so there is that element there of not exactly not absorbing it into yourself but helping carry it to somewhere that it needs to go yeah because if you absorb it you don't carry it it doesn't get where it needs to go you can't you can't work their case for them exactly and that's that's good you know for people for social workers for i'm a youth worker you know for for me we've got to remember that our role isn't to be in someone's life forever our role is to get them to a place where they can turn their own lives around that's all of our jobs in the social sector um i think we'll go to some music now and then when we come back we might talk about um the international effort of of bringing criminals to trial how it's many different countries all coming together to do something like that thank you elizabeth don't go away um welcome back i've got elizabeth king in the studio hello elizabeth hi and we've been talking all about uh, elizabeth's experience with her internship with the un she went to cambodia and was on the prosecutor's side for um a, a trial involving pol pot's regime yes so, go, jumping straight back in there, let's look at the difficulty. Well, you, you touched on it before the break, but the difficulty of going back 40 years and trying to discover and rediscover all the information. How did you find the feeling within the country about uh, the pain and the rawness of what had happened? Was it all still there? It's very much still there. Um there are a lot of people in Cambodia who are still alive who lived through that time. Um, and so the way to get evidence, um, there's really no, there's not many documents that have survived. Uh, there's not really any sort of signed piece of paper which you can point to and say this person was there, they were responsible for that. And so the way that we get the evidence is by talking to people. So the Office of the Co-Investigative Judges will go out and interview people and ask them um, to speak about their experiences and any sort of information that we can pull from that, which would help build a case, um, then goes into the trial. And I think it's it's really fantastic that they have this aspect in the trial called the civil parties. It's a way for the victims of the genocide, the Cambodian people, to actually be a party to the trial. So they can appear in court, they can um, make requests of the accused, they can ask for apologies, they can ask for information. Wow. I remember it being heartbreaking when the civil parties, like, you know, an 80-year-old man will stand up there and ask of the accused, the person on trial, did you remember seeing my wife? Did you kill my wife? This band just never knew she disappeared along with 1.7 million other people. And so it's a very unique part of the system that the civil parties can play a role in that. That's really good, I think, for the healing, um, the healing process of Cambodian people. We were talking off air, and I hope it's appropriate to talk about on air, but the, the strength and actually to hang around to stay in the world, to face 
the responsibility of what you've done takes actually a lot of courage. And I'm the first person to say, good, they should. I Absolutely, they should. You know, it's an easy way out not to be here in a way. But um, I, I also feel to stand and have someone look at you and go, did you kill my wife when clearly they've killed so many people? How would they know? Um, it makes them realize just how personal the atrocities of what they did is. And yet in that war, there is a gang mentality that takes over the fear of being singled out, of being on the receiving end. It's almost like in a school where you want to be in with the gang because you don't want to be out of the gang. In a way, really what's the difference? You know, we, we kind of look at it if we don't at, uh, uh, discuss that behavior and that energy and that um, okayness to separate and bully then actually what's the difference when you kind of get into a life situation where it's on a much bigger scale like we have in this country at the moment? Which side are you going to be on? It doesn't teach people how to handle that. But I am I guess it's a long way to say I'm really pleased that they're able to be there and actually be face-to-face with the choices that they made. Yeah, I think it's very important that there is that there are still people who we can hold accountable for it. Um, Unfortunately, Pol Pot, um, he himself died before the trials ever came to light. The trials came about, I think, 30 years after the Cambodian genocide had right. ended in 1979. Um, but it is it is tricky because from what we've seen so far, there's not a lot of remorse that's been displayed um, by the men and the women who have committed um, these acts of genocide and crimes against humanity. And that's the very confronting part of it is, you know, even 40 years later, they still believe so strongly in what they did. What they were doing was what they believed were, was the right thing. They wanted, they were building a better society. If that meant that other cultures like the Vietnamese, the Chinese, Muslims, if all of that had to go, it was still part of what they believed was something that was right. And that's that's the, the really confronting thing is when there is no remorse, but there is someone left. Mm. What justice do you get from pointing and saying and even finding on fact that they were guilty if they themselves refuse to acknowledge that what they've done was wrong. That's such a good point because in in actual fact, you have to believe with every cell in your body that what you're doing is right to be able to let yourself sink to that level of uh, attacking, killing, I mean, I, the, the atrocities of war and the rape and what... I mean, I think there's a switch that turns off Definitely, because you can't actually think that rape is right in any situation and murder is right in any situation. But there is clearly a part that's, that skips in their brain that tells them that because they feel so passionately that, that they're right. I think that must definitely have been the case. There's no other explanation for how someone goes ahead with that. But the interesting thing is, like, most of the evidence that we have, or not most, but a lot of it, is actually from Khmer Rouge soldiers and officials. Um, because... You are either with the Khmer Rouge and yeah. killing, or you are a victim and dying. Right. And so, a lot of our like most important evidence actually comes from the Khmer Rouge soldiers. And a lot of people, like you know, good people, were once a part of that regime. It was often like a kill or be killed sort of. Yeah, um, which is atmosphere. what we see everywhere, isn't it? And yeah. and do they are they the ones that come through and say that what we did, this is what we did, and actually confessing 
admitting guilt? Not so much confessing. Like they were two, like the people that we get um, a lot of the evidence from or that the the court gets evidence from, um, it's only the highest uh, members of the the regime, so the top sort of inner circle, I suppose, that we can actually prosecute, that we have the jurisdiction. So for anyone else working below them, it's not so much an admission of guilt of what they've done. It's more just information of where they got their orders from, why they did what they did. And it's very hard on a human level to understand, you know, we know you got that order, but how could you how could you kill 50 people yeah. in that place at that time? And it's very hard to empathise and try and think of what situation they were in. But it just is so much more complicated than, um, you know, being given an order. Um, if they if a Khmer Rouge soldier was found to not do what they were ordered to do, their entire family would be killed. Wow. So it's, like, so it's, it's not a, just about them. This is... No, it goes... It goes very far into the human conscience. It's very hard yeah. to understand. Which, in fact, is what they've done in the Syrian issue. They, they've, they've said, you know, if one person goes, they actually target the family that are left behind. And that's part of the trauma of the people, of the refugees that come here or to other parts of the world. The ones that go, their decision to go is, is, um, is so painful because they know what they've left people behind to deal with. Yeah, definitely. Um, you talk about, in your notes to me before you came, you talked about young people and what advice you would give them about making a difference and achieving great things. In the context of what you've just shared, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, definitely. Um there's never once been a point in my life where I've thought I'm so perfectly well prepared for what I'm about to do. Whether that is going to India, going to Cambodia to work for the UN, there's never been a point where I thought, yes, this is exactly, I'm so well equipped for this. <laughs> and so my advice to other young people, if they you know, are looking for something great to do or have that sensation as I do that there's so much to do in the world and you'd like to be a part of something, my advice is just apply mm. or just send that email. It doesn't matter. You will never be in the perfect position to do something that you want to do, but reaching out to other people or just being brave and clicking that apply button or even bringing up an idea yourself, starting a dialogue with someone with something they might not have thought of, there's nothing that can, nothing bad that can come from it. There's only an opportunity that might arise from it. So my advice to young people is just be brave. You don't need to feel like you are that person who can save the world. You can just give it a go and see what happens and make a difference somewhere. Fantastic. And we're going to be talking in a few weeks um, to a gentleman who I had on the show a couple of weeks ago, who was, who's actually the director of The Importance of Being Earnest, which is happening in these next few nights, doing a PhD talking about you know how you can look after people who go out into these countries and offer assistance how as aid workers you know they can be protected because of course now they're targets as well so when we say you know apply I, I think you're absolutely right we need to and we need to make sure we're with an organization that can really look after the young people who are going that we actually don't put them in you know straight into danger but we actually make sure that that they're going with their eyes wide open oh definitely and if you can go there and feel supported and feel safe as much as you can in what you're doing i think there's so much more potential for you to make a big impact there are there any regrets you have from your time in cambodia there is one regret i have it's a story that i haven't really shared with anyone because it might seem a bit odd in the face of the sort of you know 
genocidal work that I was, um, or the material that I was looking at. Yeah. Um, but we would commute out to the court every day. It was at least an hour on the bus, maybe two hours, depending on traffic. And the further you get outside of the city, the more sort of poverty stricken the area becomes. And I remember one day just looking out the window and I saw this, um, this dog who was walking around with a broken leg and it just broke my heart. I'm such an animal person. And it sounds silly because every day I'm reading the most horrible human stories and managing to keep it together. But I saw this dog with this broken leg and I just thought uh, overwhelmingly I wanted to do something. And then two seconds after that, my mind was flooded with all these reasons that I couldn't help. Even if I could get off the bus, like which is quite difficult on the highway, if I went up to it, it's a rabid dog. What if it bites me? How am I going to get it into a box? Is there a vet? If there is a vet, I can't afford to pay for it to get any work done and I won't be here long enough to help its recovery. So my mind just flooded with all these ideas of why I could not help this dog. And then before I knew it, um, we'd driven off. And that image of that dog on the side of the road just stuck, has stayed with me and probably will stay with me more so because I could have tried like I did see something um, I could have gotten off I could have given it a go and I think that's something that a lot of us do every day we know that there are things going on um, and we choose there's too many reasons for us not to help we don't have the money we don't know what to do how can so, like what could we have done in that situation and that was a very sort of real moment for me on that bus and I've sort of promised myself if I see a need like that again I will not just drive by I can give it a go I don't know what I would do I don't know what I could have done but I didn't try and um, that stayed with me that's such a beautiful story because you really there's that very old um very famous expression that said you know bad things happen in this world not because of the people who do the evil things, but because of those who stand by and do nothing. It's a very real quote. And and it's what you're sharing there. You know, the dog was the image that your soul gave you to say, this is the this is why you must not stand by, and, and none of us must stand by and let these things happen. We we all have a voice, and we all have equal responsibility to say something. Very true. Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. Welcome back. I have Elizabeth King with me and we've been talking about social justice and how what you learn at school you can take out into the world and um, and clearly uh, Elizabeth has brought it back to our area and is going to share with us or has shared with us how um, it's affected her life and, and how it's inspired her to carry on being engaged in the world from here on in. Now, your experience, Elizabeth, didn't stop with just Cambodia. So India was actually before Cambodia. Sorry, ah, so that was um, something I did in January. So it okay. sort of preceded the UN. Um, it was a wonderful program which I took. It was called the Young Leaders Tour. It's run by Erin Watson Lynn, who uh, is an incredible person. She's the founder of Generate Worldwide and takes um, young people to India to have a bit of cultural immersion, but to learn important skills like leadership and entrepreneurship. And also run by Margaret Quick Margaret Quixley, who's also just fantastic and has worked for the UN as well. So together okay. they team up. What a pair. Oh, they're, they're phenomenal. They've changed the way I look at travel and how I would look at trying to make a difference in the world. Essentially, when we went to India, um, it was a leadership entrepreneurship program. So we'd travel around Delhi. Um, we'd meet with other nonprofits. We'd see the kind of work that they're doing and sort of try and focus our energy on how we can use entrepreneurship, this idea of seeing a need or seeing a gap and creating something brilliant to address it um, from a very grassroots level. 
Um, and I think entrepreneurship is something like that's a great way to engage in social justice. Um, it's not necessarily just about fundraising and handing over money. It's about creating a small scale difference and then building it into something big. But what I took most of all from India, um, from Erin and Margaret, was this idea that we have to be very careful when you want to go into another country as well-intentioned as you are and you want to make a difference, you have to be very careful that in doing so, you're not imposing your values on another society. There's the classic example of, um, you know, such well-intentioned people who'll go over to India or Cambodia and build a well in a village um, so that people will have access to clean water, but will not have realised that they've built a well on a traditional or a sacred site where um, evil spirits or ancestors are buried and the village will just not drink the water from there. Mm. It's the classic example of sort of having a bit of a saviorist attitude to we can save the world, which is a good attitude to have, but not if you go in imposing your values and your ideas on a culture which hasn't had the chance to talk to you about what it is that they really want and what's important to you. So that experience in India was such an eye-opener for me because I realised so many places around the world, well-intentioned people are trying to do great things, but that dialogue is missing as to what people really want, what they really need, where resources can be best put. And I think people in all countries know what's best for them. They know how they want to grow as a culture. They know what they need. I think it's important that we listen to them um, when trying to sort of build and do development work. I'm sitting here smiling because it's all about community consultation, isn't it? Absolutely. The world around, we think that, you know, it can come in, these leaders can come in and tell you what works for you but we find it here in Sydney you know in uh, you know that the the leaders come in and, and tell Western Sydney what's wrong with them but actually community consultation is the only way the people who are living that life will tell you what they need you know they'll tell you that they need op job opportunities they'll tell you that they need actually um, decent places to live you know that the where they're living has an effect on their mental health it's um, have you heard of Sir Michael Marmot I'm not sure. So he's just finished doing a whole series of Boyer lectures um, on the social determinants of health. And um, that, that you know, all of those things that we, where we live, uh, what our job opportunities are, they have a direct consequence to the length of our life and how ill we're going to be in our life. And so, you know, we can make people well again, but then when we send them home, you send them home into an environment that's actually going to make them sick again. Mm. So unless you actually look at that, then you're never really going to be solving the problem. So again, you, you kind of got to go back to the grassroots community consultation. Don't just go into a country and think your way fixes it. And there's something really disempowering about that as well, if you yes. assume that you know what's best for someone or for their community. Yeah. So it's actually, you're doing almost just as much good by empowering them um, to discuss what it is that they want. What are their dreams? Often we assume that we know exactly what people want. Like yeah. people want the like best education they can. They want <laughs> these certain jobs. Exactly. Yes. And sometimes it's just the case that they just want to continue a beautiful family life in yes. a uh, community village with traditional agriculture. That's so right. it's very wrong to assume, I think, as we often do, that yeah. we know what is best for, for other people. Yeah, we think they want to learn math, but actually they want to teach how, you know, how to how to tend that land, how to, you know, help something grow on the on the land that they've got which is very different to the land that we might have exactly yeah there's much we can learn from each other really when we stop thinking that we've got the right way and i think yeah we often forget there is so much to learn uh 
if you often wanting to make such a difference or get involved in social justice, you're so intent on giving, just giving, giving, giving. And it's so important to make sure you listen and learn and take something back from the people that you're working with because that's often more enriching um, for everyone yes. than what you might be trying to do. Now, we should also talk about... Um that that giving, 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 and that presumption of you know you can save the world. It, it it happens with psychologists. It happens with doctors, nurses, people who are in giving professions. You can't give to another something that you haven't got from yourself. It's like giving an, from an empty cup of water. It actually one is detrimental to your health physically and mentally, but also it can come with a bit of resentment because. If the people who you are helping, in inverted commas, my little bunny ear fingers, if they're not appreciating what you're doing, you're just going, do you know what we're doing for you? Do you know what I've done for you? Do you know what I've given up for you? It comes with a whole heap of baggage that actually they didn't ask for. They don't need. So being, what would you say would be if you could talk to the, the people who are coming through? Because like, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people who listen to this who really want to go out into the world. There's a certain level of personal responsibility, personal self-care and um, an outlook on life that you need to make sure you've got in check before you go into it, wouldn't you say? Oh, definitely. I think it's really important to ask yourself why you want to do something. Um, that's often something which I find we glaze over a lot. Like it's great to see an opportunity and to seize it, as I've done a lot, um, without thinking too much about why you really want to do it and if I think that process of self-reflection is really valuable if you think you know why is it that I want to go to this country why is it that I want to engage with these people if it sort of if it comes to your light that this is something that you just want to do like for your CV for example which is something a lot of young people what you know you do need a competitive edge you need to show you've done a lot of great things but if that's the forefront of what you're doing it might have quite a detrimental impact in the end because you're at the focus of the sort of work that you're trying to achieve. And if you're working with other people, it can't just be all about you. So no. you need to have that. I think that site to look ahead um, and question why you're doing the things you are, because that means that the work that you do will be so much more impactful. We can learn from the lessons of so many like organisations and companies that have failed where they've not actually looked at the reason they're doing things, just assumed that this is what's needed, this is what should happen. Um, and like even with the stolen generation, like we look at that, that sort of situation. That's something that I don't think people really looked at why they were doing it. They just assumed this is what's best. It was done. And now we're dealing with the damage of that years later, yeah. trying to rectify situations. So oh, I'm, I'm an import, you know, I'm, I'm a, an import in Australia. So I don't, I, I've, I'm learning the horrors of, of what was done. It, it's, it's extraordinary. And yet, you know, gosh, it happens the world over. It's not just Australians problem, but it is extraordinary what we thought how anyone ever thought that that was going to be okay and yet you know people were young children were taken from uh from unmarried mothers in the uk and sent over to australia you know so they were separated by um by an incredible amount of land and water and no no information given about that at all so i think we yeah i think we've got to be very careful people in power have to be very careful um, about imposing what they think are good policies and uh, without actually good com uh, conversation and, uh, you know, implementation strategies. It's actually not okay to suddenly go into the evaluation stage and say, yeah, that wasn't such a great plan. We've really got to look at it way up front. And actually there was a, the, a good example of that was the scheme, the policy that was about trying to get uh, more 
business during the financial crisis and they went in and said you know we're going to insulate everyone's homes but they didn't do it properly and people died as a result of that policy that's just an example of you know a really poor policy being put into place and then come to the evaluation stage and everyone goes yeah okay not such a great one but it wasn't a great one right from the get-go and any consultation with anyone up front could have told them that yeah you know, it's I, I, I love the fact that, again, we're taking local, we're going global and we're coming back to local and seeing how, you know, all around the world, we're not experiencing different problems, but we need to learn from each other and, and not impose and actually really get that consultation with community right and um, the community be involved and engaged in the change that they want to see. Oh, absolutely. Did you find that when you were in India um, that... The, if any programs that Erin um, and Margaret were setting up were about leaving them to change their own lives afterwards? Yeah, that's sort of um, the focus of the non-profits that we visited. It's, it's, there's this huge focus on making sure that people don't just go in, set something up, like build wells or build a school, and then leave and then have it fall apart because that's just wasted resources and it's really damaging on the... Um, the community itself and I remember we visited this one nonprofit, and we had a really good sort of group chat about it where there was um, sort of like a, a school or a housing uh, thing which had been built to take in homeless children off the street so we, you'd be giving yep. them a great home um, nutritious meals and education and all that but then in order to sort of support that and get fundraising the um, organisation would let visitors off the street, so randoms like mostly Western people, come in and see and interact with the children, um, which is quite well-intentioned. And the kids, like there was an impression that they did love it, getting to play and visit with strangers. But really having such a high turnover of strangers coming through their home, yeah. I think is actually, it, it's not as good as it looks on the outset. And so it was really interesting being part of the Young Leaders Tour, critically analysing things which seem great at the outset or which we know where people are doing good work, but then also some of the aspects which don't go thought about as much. So it was interesting to learn from them and learn how to question um, sort of everything that's going on. Yeah, I can't help being reminded of something else you've shared here, that that was really for the people who were doing the, the tourism. Mm. It was to actually satisfy their needs as opposed to actually understanding the needs of the people who they were visiting. Yeah, and it's a bit of a trend now, really. I think people really do want, and this is something which I caution young people to think about carefully. There really is a trend of, um, there's so many people wanting to do great things and having great skills, and there's an industry that's now built around that. Mm. So in Cambodia, there are orphanages um, where you can go and work, where students can go and work and work with the kids and help them. But in fact, those orphanages have been set up specifically to accommodate that sort of eco-tourist um, or adventure tourism. And those kids actually have parents, they have families, but they've been taken away, put in these orphanages to create that image of there being a need. And the volunteers who'll go over will pay a lot of money to be there. Um, and that money is not going towards the children. It's not going towards bettering their education or their home. It's feeding sort of a gap that people have realized that people want to make a difference and then exploiting that and so for young like and it's something very hard to see it's not something which is you know displayed obviously this is an exploitative um orphanage so for young people who are wanting to do all these adventure programs or these sort of um like uh eco-friendly tourism or there's a word for it, volunteerism. That's yeah. the word, volunteerism. volunteerism. I do encourage you as much as you can to do your research. See where your $3,000 program fee, where is that going? Is it going to the partners? Is it going to the community? 
or is it going somewhere else? Um, because as ideal as it seems to go and work in an orphanage or to go and work with elephants, it might actually have really detrimental effects behind it, which I know is not what people want. It's just what people might not realise is happening. And what you've just pointed out is so interesting, isn't it? There will always be an industry that will exploit someone and and the eco-tourism, no, no, the voluntourism is exactly what's being exploited here. They're, they're understanding that the Western world or other countries want to help. And so they're saying, yeah, yeah, come and help us, come and help us. But they're exploiting it. It's really disappointing oh. because it is good intentioned people with great resources yes. going over and accidentally driving a really destructive force. And it's hard to know. It's hard to point out. Yeah. But there are ways to do your research and see what's really going on. And there are some great companies out there. So it's just a matter of questioning what you're doing, what they're doing and why you're going. Yes. And you'll fall into something great. Yep. Yep. I'm sure there's been an ABC documentary on it. Might have been a Four Corners. So uh, it would be worth, you know, if you are doing some research, having a look online and, and finding out what it was, what is out there that that debunks and actually tells you about it. I'm pretty sure it was a four corner. So have a look on, uh, yeah, have a look at what's out there. Now we're coming to the end of our show. It just seems to have gone so fast, doesn't it, Elizabeth? I know, Sundays are never this exciting for me. <laughs> well, welcome. You should come in every Sunday morning or at least listen in and then call in. I have to, I have to try and do a call back. Be really good, a call in show. Now, um, Next week's show is going to take a slightly different uh, angle. It's going to be on weight loss from a local woman who I, ins- I suspect will inspire many. Um, you know, what she experienced at school, some of the real um, bullying she experienced, um, and with the major problems we have with obesity and overweight at the moment, I think it's a great conversation to have because the trajectory, if you... This is someone who was very overweight at school and has managed to turn it around in her adult life, and all the research that that I'm doing and reading and learning about is that if we can't churn it around in childhood it's actually quite difficult in an adult body and then the it, it predisposes you to some very serious illnesses so um, I think next week's show will be an absolute corker till then as ever there is a discipline that's called for in our own active engagement in our own health and well-being so please ensure you build your body and that relationship with your body so you have the capacity to offer back to the community always better to offer from a glass half full than a glass half empty is that what you would say elizabeth any top tips oh absolutely i think Believing in yourself is such a simple thing, such an easy thing to say, but it really is everything. If there's, if you want to be better, if you need to feel better, whatever it is that you need or want to do, just believe you can do it and find people to help you share the journey. That's that's the wisdom. I've had people who have been with me through India, through Cambodia, and who will be with me throughout my life in Korea. And if you, it's that support network which will help you get through whatever it is you're facing. Beautifully said. The podcast for the show will be available through the Stay in the Loop with Lucy website and on SoundCloud. And if you want to get updates till then, please like the at Stay in the Loop with Lucy Facebook page or the Twitter or the actual website page itself, the blog page. And link to all of those spaces are on the Triple H homepage. Till next week's show, remember to take a moment to look after you, connect with the amazing people in our community, be kind, be caring, be love, be you. You've been listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H. 100.1 FM. 